Dear Father, we do thank you for the wonderful record that we have of Abraham's life. We do thank you for your faithfulness towards him that becomes so clear as we go through the text. Uh, We do thank you for the promises left to be fulfilled to Abraham uh, that we can look forward to also in the millennial kingdom. We do praise you for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. You guys are probably all thinking somehow Paul got out of reading all those tricky names. Well, it was his birthday last week, so I gave him, I I asked someone else to do it. (laughs) So thank you, Mark. All right, as I mentioned uh, earlier this morning, we're going to cover two sections worth, um, primarily because as I started digging into Ishmael's generations, I realized we don't really know where many of them went, so there wouldn't be much to talk about next week. So um, it will be an appendage onto this week's message, which is the satisfaction of Abraham. If we remember where we are in the chiasm of Isaac, we reached the climax last week. Uh, Actually, the whole last month we've been dealing with the climax, which was chapter 24. And it deals with the new matriarch of the seed line. Remember, as Abraham was encountering God and receiving promises and covenants from him, God continued to clarify what exactly the seed line was, what exactly the promises and blessings were to it. Abraham was first confused and thought that he could adopt his nephew as an heir. And then uh, when he realized he could not adopt his nephew, he had his his, uh, highest slave in his service would naturally, by natural law, receive what he had. And then he tried to have another son by a concubine, by Hagar. And he found out in God's revelation that this is also not God's plan for the seed, but that the matriarch of the line would be just as important as Abraham himself, that Sarah must be part of this line just as Abraham must be part of this line. And so we see that with the next generation as well. It's not just about Isaac and any woman, but it's about Isaac and Rebekah. God has chosen Rebekah for him, for this seed line of equal importance to Isaac in this seed line. And so finding her and bringing them together in marriage was the climax of fulfilling God's promise to Abraham of a next generation. Not just a son who may or may not have children, but a son who is now positioned to have children. We're going to take a break from Genesis for about six months, but when we come back, we'll spend most of our time in the life of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, and we'll see that there was some trouble getting Jacob because Rebekah was barren, just as Sarah was. God miraculously intervened and brought life to Rebekah's womb. And then Isaac and Rebekah were able to have Jacob and Esau. So what we're doing this week follows immediately after that, and it parallels what came before this climax. Just as before the climax, we saw the death of the matriarch Sarah, so now we see the death of Abraham, and also we see his second wife, Keturah. Just as we saw the arrogated line of Nahor, Abraham's brother, the line that was not chosen for covenant, so we see the line of Ishmael closed off with a nice little bow before we move on to the covenant son, Isaac. And so, the main point this morning that you'll want on the front of your mind as we go through the text is that God is faithful to all of his promises we'll see that far more people than just Abraham are involved in all of this. But God's covenant promises have been given to Abraham. To Abraham, he promised land, seed, and blessing. We see that although Abraham died without receiving all that he was promised, he did see the beginning of the land promise with the field of Machpelah and the seed son and even grandsons. He got to see 15 years of Jacob and Esau's life before dying. And he got to see blessing in his life, as we saw from the uh, testimony of the servant who lived with him, who declared that God has surely blessed Abraham. Abraham was gathered to his fathers. 
This, as we'll see, is an indication of the afterlife, the hope of a future fulfillment of all that God has promised to Abraham. And so while the story of Abraham closes without him receiving the entire promised land, without him seeing all the descendants that would come from him, God's promise is still equally sure and will guarantee a future for Abraham still. This is the argument that Jesus uses combating the uh, Sadducees who do not believe in a resurrection. He tells them that God is the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Abraham is still alive, just not in his body. And so this is broken into three parts. We see first the descendants of Abraham through Keturah, and then we'll see the death of Abraham, and then the descendants of Abraham through Hagar. Abraham had six additional sons to Isaac and Ishmael, all of them by Keturah. Genesis 25.1 says, Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Abraham's first wife, Sarah, was his own half-sister. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai. In the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishka, Sarai was barren and she had no children. Well, this wife, Sarai, not able to have children, uh, by natural means at least, uh, was the one who devised the plan for Abraham to have an heir through a different uh, surrogate, essentially, her own handmaid. This did not turn out very well. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Notice Sarah is seeking to obtain children for herself through this handmaid, a child who would be an heir to Abraham's blessing and covenant. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai, and after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Now as we're going to see, Abraham is, con or Sarah, Hagar rather, is considered a concubine. But here we say that Sarai gave her to Abram as a wife. Abram would need to marry Hagar legally in order for a descendant of Hagar to legally be an heir of his uh, property and covenants. And so at this point, we see Abram has two wives. Now, Abram gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines. Abram gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. We've not seen anything about concubines for Abram. We've seen two additional wives. We've seen Hagar, whom he married, and Keturah, whom he married. But both legally either had or became of the status of a concubine. While Abraham sent Hagar away, and he sent her away with the legal responsibility over Ishmael, he did two things. It was a divorcement of Hagar, lowering her legally to a status of a concubine, no longer a wife. And he emancipated his own son, Ishmael, no longer a full heir, no longer one who would receive the covenant. Hagar actually apparently went through an opposite transition. Hagar was apparently a concubine whom Abraham obtained later in life, and then, after the death of Sarah, married her, but did not adopt her children through him as full heirs. This was common in the ancient Near East, where there were actually two steps for a child to undergo in order to become an heir of the parent. Just being born of that parent was not enough being born and then being adopted as the legal heir. And so there was a natural heir 
and a legal heir. And that is why we saw that Eleazar, the servant from Damascus, was considered Abraham's heir. At that time, he was adopted as Abraham's next of kin because he had no natural next of kin. In 1 Chronicles 132-33, we see that Keturah, later after Genesis, is considered simply a concubine. The sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine, whom she bore, were Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, etc. Well, we're going to go through those children that Keturah bore to Abraham, but we're going to go through them much more quickly than we've gone through uh, previous tables because we don't know much about most of these children. They kind of disappear into the fabric of the Arabian Peninsula. Zimran, the oldest, settled on the western Arabian coast. Here's a picture right there. It was kind of the central western, just east of Mecca. Mecca is pretty close to the coast, and so these were coastline people along the Arabian Peninsula opposite Africa. Jokshan is the next one, and he settled the southern Arabian Peninsula. As you can see here, Zimran's descendants went down, but Jokshan's descendants went down further, and this would be Sheba and Dedan, and they occupied the places that are today known as Oman and Yemen. Medan and Midian were south of Elat on the shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. Elat is the furthest southern point of Israel. It's the place where the southern tip touches uh, the Sinai Peninsula, and there's just a little spit of land. On one side, it's called Elat, and that is in Israel. On the other side, it's called Aqaba, and that's in Jordan. And so they occupied this little area of land south of Israel. Midian, his brother, occupied a larger region in the same area, spreading even into the Sinai Peninsula and up into Transjordan, the opposite side of the Jordan River from Israel. So Midian covered the northwest Arabian Peninsula to the southern Sinai Peninsula. Now, we read of both Midian and Medan later in Genesis. These ones come up again. And it comes up in the context of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. Joseph's brothers, after throwing him in a pit, say, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph, uh, Joseph into Egypt. Now notice how these Midianites, sons of Abraham through Keturah, are considered Ishmaelites, which are sons of Abraham through Hagar. Ishmael it's, as we will see later in the text this morning, settled in defiance of his brothers or settled against his brothers. Uh, this has the sense of warring against them and conquering them. And so as we move on later in, in uh, places like Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, about a thousand years after this, 1500 years after this, we'll see that the Ishmaelites and the Hagarites are considered the majority peoples in this region, and all of the Keturites have been assumed under Ishmael. But these Midianite traders are still somewhat distinguishable at this time. And then we see that, meanwhile, the Medanites sold him, into, uh, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard, this does not say Midianites, this says Medanites. So we see two of these brothers, sons of Keturah, selling Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. So their great, or what is it, first cousin two times removed, selling him into Egypt. And just as Joseph's own brothers are plotting against him, we see all of his cousins plotting against him here as well, selling him into Egypt. 
The Midianites weren't all bad, though. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led, to the, uh, led the flocks to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses married a Midianite woman named Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. And Jethro was very instrumental in Moses coming out of Egypt and organizing the people. Jethro here is seen as a priest of Midian and may very well be a priest of God in Midian. But, by and large, the Midianites are enemies of Israel. They become perennial enemies of Israel. And so we do see it as more than just simply ironic that God promised Abraham a son, Isaac, and all these other seven sons became a thorn in the side of Isaac in the promised land. Even though Abraham is going to send them all away from the land into the east, they are all going to press west, pushing Israel into the sea. Numbers 22, 2-4, through 4, we see that Balak, the son of Zippor, saw, that, uh, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people. And remember, Moab is the son of Lot. For they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, we have an alliance here forming against Israel as they come out of Egypt. Now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak said, or Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. And then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And this is the end of the verse, and that's where I'm cutting it off. You guys know what happens next. Uh, this was a plot between Balak and the king of Moab, and they used the Midianites. You see, Balak was tasked with cursing Israel as they came out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And three different times he tries to curse Israel, but instead the one true God of Israel puts a blessing in his mouth towards Israel. And finally... Balak is only able to curse Moab. But Balak is still the bad guy in this situation. Despite all of God's efforts to stop Balak from doing an evil thing, Balak was the one who came up with the idea saying, we can't get God to curse them, but we can get them to corrupt themselves from within and become corrupted towards God, curseable by God. And so his plot was to send in Midianite women to corrupt the Israelis, especially corrupting them in uh, sexual perversion and idolatry. And so this is what is occurring in Numbers 25. We see a flagrant display of the corruption of these Midianite women within the camp of Israel. And a plague had been cast on the Israel by God because of this, which honestly, was what Balak was hoping for, that God would curse them because of their own self-corruption. In Judges 6, moving on a couple hundred years, we see the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. The book of Judges is multiple cycles of Israel doing well and Israel doing poorly, but mostly doing poorly and God sending neighboring tribes into uh, basically be a thorn in their side, and then sending judges to be valor, uh, victors in the land. And so this is what precipitated the rise of uh, Gideon. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. In other words, the Midians pushed them into caves in the wilderness. They were so frightful and so terrible that they couldn't stand up against them. For it was then 
or it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites, the sons of the east, and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, which is as far as to the Mediterranean Sea, and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkeys. Well, eventually God is going to step in and deal with these Midianites. He deals with them uh, here, firstly, through Gideon, who pushes them back. Uh, and they do not become a problem for Israel until the time of the deportation. He has two more sons, Ishbak and Shua. We don't know much about either Ishbak or Shua, but we do know generally the region that they went to. They went to the southern Jordan region and the Syrio-Arabian desert, which is Jordan and Syria. So they were in this Transjordan area and apparently traveled up north. Shuites do come up once more in scripture, at least, in Job 2.11. Now when Job's three friends heard all that this, this adversary that had come upon him, they came each one of, from his own place, Eliphaz the Tamanite, Taman, as we'll see, is a son of Ishmael, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. These were three of Job's friends. Bildad the Shuhite is actually the shortest man in scripture. Letting that one sink in. Shuhite? No? Okay. Okay, I got one laugh. That's better than normal. The next generation is also listed here, not just the children of Keturah, but the grandchildren through Keturah, through Midian and Jokshan. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephor and Hanak and Abida and Eldah. These were the sons of Keturah. Yeah, he's come up again. So in Numbers 31, as we are coming back into the land after the years in Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take full vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Full vengeance because of this corruption that the Midianite women had come in and induced into Israel. Afterward, you will be gathered to your people. Take note of that phrase. We're going to come back to that. Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel, and you shall send to war. So there were furnished from the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. And Moses sent them, a thousand from each tribe, to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian, along with the rest of their slain, Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Baor, with the sword. Well, these are not the same five sons, but these apparently retained their delineation within the tribe of Midian. There are five kings, probably direct descendants of these five sons. And it is Israel coming back into the land that finally does away with these five kings, and it simply becomes the tribe of Midian without a division when we see them again in Judges. Their territory of land was primarily the land of Edom, or the southern Negev. All right, we move on to the next section here, which is Abraham dividing up his wealth amongst his sons. And we see right off the bat, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Isaac was considered his one and only true heir, his one and only descendant, the only one worthy to take the covenant from Abraham and pass it into the next generation. And we will see God agreeing with that in verse 11. This apparently happened already. This was something that occurred before Abraham died. It was not a deathbed passing on of what he had 
received because the servant who we saw in Haran going up to collect Rebekah had declared to Laban that God or that uh, Abraham has given all that he has to Isaac. Remember he said, starting halfway through this slide, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age and he has given him all that he has. Abraham, or uh, Isaac rather, was already the full heir, the full recipient of all that Abraham had, but it was closer to his death and while he was still living that he divided out to some of this or these sons of his concubines various gifts. Now Abraham was so wealthy that his wealth scared the kings of Gaza, the kings of Canaan, and so he had plenty enough to give. And so to these sons of concubines, concubines in the plural here, probably referring to uh, Ishmael as well as Keturah's sons. He gave it to them while they were still living. Now looking back into Genesis 21, verses 9 through 14, where Abraham sends away Ishmael, we see that he gave Ishmael no gifts on his parting. He gave him the basic necessities while also separating himself legally from responsibility to both Hagar and Ishmael. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. And therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Abraham had desired to bless Ishmael in some way, as we saw in chapter 17, and we'll look at again in a minute, that even though Abraham knew that the covenant would go to Isaac, he still sought for the good of Ishmael. He still wanted some sort of good and some sort of blessing to come to him. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and skin and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Abraham had to send away his son, trusting that God would be the one to bless him. God would make him great. God would give him descendants. And he is able to trust God in this because God has made the same promise to him and he has been faithful to that promise. And so God making that promise to his descendant, Ishmael, he's able to send him off trusting that God will bless him. But we see that after Sarah's death, Ishmael does make a return, at least a small one. And that it's at this point that the concubines, plural, of Abraham received gifts. Their sons received gifts gifts. Uh, skip ahead to that verse really quick. In verse 9, we see that it was both Isaac and Ishmael who came together to bury Abraham. And so Ishmael did make a return. Uh, what that return looked like, we don't know exactly. But we know that he is one of the sons of these concubines and probably at this time received the gifts that Abraham would have liked to give him while Sarah was still alive. <clears throat> but just as he did with Ishmael, all of these sons he sent away. He sent them away from his son Isaac specifically. And then were given twice for emphasis, redundancy usually indicates emphasis, that he sent them east. He sent them away. Why? Because the promised land was in the west. The promised land was the land of Canaan, and you could not get further west than the land of Canaan because you run into the Mediterranean Sea. And therefore, all of these sons who might at some point in their future lineage try to make a claim to the land, Abraham sent far away so that they would not threaten Isaac, so that they would not threaten Isaac's inheritance. 
And they did go east, but they went mostly south and north. And then they came right back, and they started warring on Israel's borders. In Genesis 17, verses 3 through 8, we read that Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Remember back in chapter 12, he said that he would make his name great. And here he literally changes his name to show Abraham that he has made his name great. He says, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, multiple political entities that are distinct and separate. And he does this by their tribes and this whole Chapter, chapter 25, is showing God's faithfulness to this promise to Abraham, that he would make him the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Now, I don't have this verse in here, but at about verse 12 or 13, God makes the same promise to Sarah. God promises that kings and nations would come from Sarah. You say, well, if this is fulfilled to Abraham through Keturah and Hagar, who is it fulfilled through Sarah or to Sarah through? Well, the only explanation that we can come up with is the divided kingdom of Israel. That's the only time where Sarah's descendants have multiple nations, unless you count Esau, which is a good option. But Abraham did not need to have these concubines, these extra wives, and all of these extra children in order for God to be faithful to him. God was going to be faithful to this promise one way or another. And here we see all of these children becoming centuries and millennia of enemies to the people of the promise of God, people who despise the covenant of God, people who despise Israel in the land even still today, trying to make a claim to this land that was not given to them by God. It took Abraham a lot to learn to be faithful, and we see even at the end of his life, faithfulness was not his modus operandi of every single moment. Abraham still had failures. Abraham still had weaknesses. Abraham still had times where he did not trust God. Abraham still had times where he didn't understand God fully. But we know that Abraham is still held by God's promises, God's covenant, God's faithfulness. And it's really God that is the hero of all of these stories. It's easy to come away and think, okay, Abraham's perfect, Abraham's wonderful, God matured him and now he's so great. Really, the story shows that God is great and that all of the servants of, of God have flaws, except for one the one who would serve him perfectly and bring life to all humanity. <clears throat> it's at this point, after noting his last descendants, that we're told he breathed his last and he died. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Now this is a very unique aspect of Moses' writing. This concludes the section in Genesis 11 of the Table of Nations. This is the same exact format by which he listed all of the other descendants. And so far in the lines, he only really broke out to talk specifically about Noah in two chapters. And then he returned to the Table of Nations. And then he comes, or the genealogical records of chapters 4, 5, 10, and 11. And here he concludes it. This is a large excursus in one genealogy. This is a 15-chapter parenthesis explaining the life of Abraham, a very important character in the history of God's creation. We see that Abraham lived 175 years. That's 100 years after entering into the land of Canaan, 38 years after Sarah died, and 15 years after Jacob and Esau were born. 
And so Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. This is a very emphatic way of saying that Abraham lived a good life and he died well. A lot of the rabbis argue about these phrases, noting that they specify specific states of death, that he died suddenly or he died unexpectedly. He didn't die with disease, but he died peacefully and naturally. And I think there's some merit to that. He died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. God had been faithful to him, and God had carried him through despite his own unfaithfulness, and he had even seen times of faithfulness because of God's faithfulness to him. And then we see this little phrase, he was gathered to his people. And some try to argue that this means he was brought up to Haran and buried with his ancestors. And that's not at all what happened, because now we get another three verses explaining exactly where he was buried. And he was buried far, far, far away from any of his ancestors, at least physically. Well, this is a common phrase that we see whenever patriarchs die. In fact, this phrase is unique to Moses' writing. When Isaac dies, it says he breathed his last, that is to expire, essentially. And then to die, the separation of the soul from the body. And then he was gathered to his people. An old man of ripe age, his sons Esau and Jacob, buried him. <clears throat> when Jacob dies, in Genesis 47:29, the time for Israel to die, Israel is Jacob, drew near. He called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, Place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Notice he separates these two ideas. He's going to be gathered to his fathers while he's still in Egypt. But he wants his bones taken out of Egypt and placed in a cave of Machpelah. This is also the phrase used when Aaron dies. In Numbers 20, 23 through 26, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. In other words, Aaron will not have his bones brought into the land and be buried in the cave. But Aaron will be gathered to his people. Because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah, take Aaron and his son Eliezer and bring them up to, the, up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eliezer so Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. Well, Aaron is buried by himself with no other person next to him on the top of Mount Hor. He is not gathered to an ancestral grave but he was gathered to his people. Moses, in Deuteronomy 32, 48-52, the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession, and then die on the mountain where you ascend, and be gathered to your people. As Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel, for you shall uh, see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there, into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. Moses is neither buried in the land of Israel, nor in the land of Egypt, not together with any ancestor, but somewhere in the wilderness, probably in the Transjordan area. In fact, we don't know at all where exactly he is buried. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, 
Notice the capital there. God himself buried him in the valley of the land of Moab. Opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Moses was not buried in an ancestral cave, but he was gathered to his people. In fact, in uh, the book of Jude, Michael is disputing with Satan about the body of Moses. Why? Because they don't know where it's buried. But Michael does not bring a railing accusation against Satan. He lets God do that. In Luke 16, 19 through 23, we see the afterlife spoken, as, spoken of as Abraham's bosom. This was the way that Old Testament saints understood Sheol, especially the paradise section of Sheol. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor, named, poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs, which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. It appears here that the distinction between joining your fathers is between the Hades section of Sheol and the Paradise section of Sheol. One goes on to await the eternal life promised to them by God. The other goes on to await the eternal death and torment. Abraham is buried with his wife, Sarah. He's not buried with Hagar. He's not buried with Keturah. He's married with the wife of the covenant. Then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre. This is quoting from the purchased contract that he has with the Hethites, indicating exactly where he was and that it was his land that he owned. This is a fulfillment of the promise that God had given him in part. He will eventually possess the entire land, but he owns all of the land. And here his ownership is recognized in a small portion. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And now we see the transfer of blessing, moving from Abraham to Isaac as the new patriarch of the family. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. See, Abraham has passed on all that he has to Isaac, but the blessing of the covenant is God's to pass on. It's God's to hand on to the next generation, and God himself blesses Isaac directly. And now Isaac becomes the possessor of that covenant. And then we see that Isaac lived by Beer Lahairoi. He moved down south, south further even than Abraham had lived in uh, Hebron and Mamre, and then moved south to Beersheba, and now we see an even further south move to Beer Lahairoi. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, when they first came into the land and they noticed a problem there, that despite God, the fact that God had promised this land to them, it was already occupied. The Canaanites were living there, and we see them coming against the Canaanites here in Machpelah, where they tried their hardest not to let Abraham buy any land among them. Well, they own that land, but still the Canaanites live in that land and they're living down in the south now because that's unoccupied land. And as we see all of these sons of Abraham, both from Keturah and from uh, Hagar, moving out, they're filling land that is not arable land. It's land that would not be the first place one would choose to settle. And sometimes we might look at this and think, what's with this? Abraham passes through all of this wonderful fields and hills and, and uh, arable land, 
in Syria and Israel and then goes into the desert and hangs out in the desert for generations. Well, it's not until they come out of Egypt that God is finally ready to have them wipe out the Canaanites, the Amalekites, and all of the people who are dwelling in the good portions of the land. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as we'll see, all wait patiently for their possession that will be theirs in the land of Canaan. What is passed to Isaac is the entire covenant of Abraham. This is what God had promised in chapter 17, that the same covenant that God had cut with Abraham back in chapter 15 would be handed on to every subsequent generation of his line, all the land, the seed, and the blessing. And so Isaac becomes the next name in our seed line promise. Came from Seth, the promised seed to Eve, and then to Noah, and then to Shem, and to Abraham, and now to Isaac. It will be passed to Jacob, and then passed down to Judah. Judah will be promised that the scepter will never pass from his line. David will come up in his line and become king over Israel. He will be promised that a member of his lineage will sit on the throne of Israel for all of eternity. And for that, you need an eternal person. You need someone who can bring eternal life. And that is Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah of Israel. In Genesis 17, 18 through 21, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Don't forget Ishmael. You've given these wonderful blessings of this covenant to my second son, Isaac, but don't forget Ishmael. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. God had a plan for Ishmael still, and before he can fully move away from the story of Abraham, he has to tie up that story as well, because Ishmael is not going to return as a character anymore after this. Moses is doing away, literally, with Abraham and, I, and Ishmael, so he can turn his focus fully to Isaac and Isaac's descendants. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah, the Egyptian Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. Remember this structure that we can identify in the book of Genesis. These are basically chapters that Moses has put in the book so we can distinguish them. These are the Toledots or the generations. So whenever you see in Genesis, these are the generations of, in Hebrew, that's the word Toledot. And it basically is saying this is what happened to their descendants. This is what happened after them. And so we had the creation of the heavens and the earth in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And then God says, okay, here's what happened to heaven and earth. The Toledot of the heavens and earth, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And then we have Adam and Eve in the fall. And we have Cain's line that is not the blessed line, not the seed line. And then we want to find out what happened to Adam. And so in chapter 5, Moses writes, these are the generations of Adam. And then with the flood, these are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Noah's three sons. And then we get the Toledot of Shem. Then we get the Toledot of Terah. Here's what happened to Terah's sons. And guess what? That's what all of chapters 12 through 25 has been about. We've seen Nahor come up. We've seen Haran come up. We've seen Rebekah, Laban, all of these members of the seed line of Terah. This is what chapters 12 through 25 has been about. Well, now we get this tiny little Toledot, just seven verses. Here's the Toledot or the generations of Ishmael. That's it. 
That's all he gets. But God fulfills his promise to a T. He did not promise them eternal descendants. He did not promise them eternal dynasties. He promised him 12 princes. And that's exactly what he gets. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names, in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kader, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jeter, Nafish, and Kadema. Twelve sons, twelve princes. Again, we'll kind of rush through these, not really spending much time because there's not much to know about them. They're not the main focus of scripture, but they do show up once in a while in relationship to Israel. Nebaioth, the oldest, is the oldest of Ishmael, and he is possibly the ancestor of the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were those who came in and built Petra. Ironically enough, this is where God will protect Israel during the tribulation period, after they've been chased out of Israel by the Antichrist. God has been preparing this time for them all the way back to the division of their original ancestors. Kedar, the next one, is the best attested descendant of Ishmael in Arabia, both in secular sources and in scripture. We see Kedar coming up more than any of the others. For example, in Psalm 125-7, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Whenever we see Kedar mentioned, they're mentioned as a nomadic people, but a particularly militant people, lovers of violence and war. Isaiah 21, 16 through 17 says, Thus, for the, uh, thus the Lord said to me, In a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. And the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. This about 1,400 years after the renaissance of Kedar, we have the end of Kedar, declared in the book of Isaiah, around the time of the deportation of the northern kingdom. God is also dealing with these other nations around Isaiah and Jeremiah particularly, and many of the minor prophets, deal with these nations surrounding Israel. And as God is hauling them off into captivity in Assyria and Babylon, he is also wiping clean the land from those who have been oppressing Israel. <clears throat> Abdil, we don't know much about him other than he lived in the northern Arabian Peninsula. Mishma, we can identify a little more specifically to the northeast region of Medina. Medina is north, directly north of Mecca, a little further north on the Arabian Peninsula. Duma is in the Arabian highlands north of Taman. Taman, you can see right there in the Transjordan area, and this is that big, vast, empty space of the Arabian desert that you almost never see brought up because nothing lives there. This is where these descendants of Ishmael lived. Tema was in Northwest Arabia, mentioned in the book of Job as a, a group of travelers and traders. So once again, we get the impression of nomadic people that had no permanent settlements. Jeter is probably the ancient ancestor of the Eturians. This was the dominion of Philip the Tetrarch in the Gospels whenever they go over to Iteria. This is in the Transjordan area, specifically Gilead region. They were conquered by the uh, Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh uh, under Jeroboam, I believe. The sons of Reuben and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, consisting of valiant men, men who bore shields and swords and shot with bow and were skillful in battle, were 44,760 who went to war. They made war against the Hagarites, Jeter, Nafish, and Nodab. They were helped against them, and the Hagarites and all who were with them were given into their hand, 
And they cried out to God in battle, and he answered their prayers because they trusted him. Naphish was also in the Transjordan area. And on the left-hand side here, you see the main portion of Israel. You can see Jericho and Jerusalem highlighted there, Nazareth up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And everything east of the Sea of, or the River of Jordan is considered Transjordan. Trans meaning across, across the Jordan River. Well, all of these nations as well have a future promise, but the future promise specifically comes through Israel. And as they have been tormentors of Israel for all of Israel's existence, we see that they become servants of Israel in the millennial kingdom. In Isaiah 60, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. God speaking to Israel. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will, be, will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those of Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense, and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with, the, with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. You see, the Ishmaelites, the Hagarites, the Keturites, they all have a future. But their future is intimately bound to the future of Israel. Without Israel, they have no future. The summary statement of these children of Ishmael comes in verse 16. These are the sons of Ishmael. They, uh, and these are their names by their villages, by their camps, 12 princes, according to their tribes. Now villages here is unfortified cities. Camps are temporary dwellings. And tribes, this is specifically the term for tribes that is used for nomads. So in other words... They have no permanent settlements. They have no permanent land. They're, they would be a wild buck, just as God had promised to Hagar concerning Ishmael. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. And he, Ishmael, settled in defiance of all of his relatives. He became a plague to all of his relatives. He was always in battle against them, conquering and seeking to conquer. Well, here is Shur on the left, and here is Havilah on the uh, right. So we see that it stretches all the way from Egypt over to Iran, over the northern portion of the Arabian uh, Peninsula, and even up into the Syrio-Arabian uh, desert. <clears throat> and then we get one last statement, and actually this verse comes before the last one we looked at. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years, and he breathed his last, and died, and he was gathered to his people. Ishmael is one of the only people, in fact, the only person outside of the covenant line that we're told is gathered to his people. Moses specifically identified him as one who, though he's not part of the covenant, still had a relationship with the one true God. And so when he died, he's gathered to his father, Abraham. Abraham was gathered to his fathers, fathers who have entered into paradise, awaiting the promises that God has given to them, awaiting that day when the final seed would descend into paradise and inform them all of the victory that has been won on the cross and would then empty out Abraham's bosom, 
empty out paradise in Sheol, so that all who die in faith in the one true God and his Son, Jesus Christ, do not, are not gathered to their people in Sheol anymore, but are immediately present together with the Lord. And so we see God is faithful to all of his promises. To Abraham he promised land, seed, and blessing. We see that although Abraham died without receiving all that he was promised, he did see the beginning of the land promise with the field of Machpelah, the seed son promise, and even grandsons. He got to see Jacob and a blessing even in his lifetime. Abraham was gathered to his people, gathered to his fathers, an indication of the afterlife and hope of the future fulfillment of all that God has promised to Abraham. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that your promises are sure and that they cannot be left undone. We thank you that nothing will stand in your way in fulfilling what you have promised to us. We thank you that you have given us the promise of eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that that guarantees for us glory together with him. And so we do praise you as we await that day, and we long for it with bated breath. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.